Welcome to In the Demo, a show about the stories that get told about groups, how those stories got made, what we think those stories get wrong, and why it matters. You hosts, Farah Bostic is the founder and head of research and strategy of The Difference Engine, a strategic insights consultancy focused on helping business leaders make decisions. Adam Piano, author and brand consultant and managing director of brand strategy at Arizona State University. You are now in the demo. I'm Adam Pierno, Generation X. And I'm Farah Bostic, the Apple IIe generation. <laughs> hey, how many of these are there? Like, do you have <laughs> enough to do the whole season with these nicknames? You're scra- I could tell I you're at a certain point it's it's true. I am. I am. I'm now taking some art, uh, artistic license and creating my own. Okay. All right. Well, maybe on, we can, you know, kind of cultural artifacts that seem to define that period. So we yeah. know people, I bet you we could get these injected into the culture and get them mainstreamed or at least added to a Huffington Post. It's true. Post. I would. Oh, totally. Yeah. More, more HuffPo articles about the, the Apple IIe generation for sure. Perfect. And how we're totally shaping culture. Oh, every day. In our late forties. Every day. People love people love hearing from us us people in our mid forties. We're we're driving culture every day. Absolutely. When, when we day. last left off, Farah, if you remember, yes. we looked at the Ur text for millennials, millennials rising. And we had, as we usually do, some questions about mm-hmm. methodology, about the way the data was considered and assembled and the narrative that was built on top of it. And some of that is due in part to the way that the data is referenced in the the indices of the book, which is a little vague. So we did a couple of things. We did some of our own research as we want to do because we are nerds. And we also reached out to some people that were participants in the book We reached out to some people that have a really good background of the area in which the research was done, which is the beautiful McLean, Virginia. Yes. Are you excited? I'm so excited. I'm so excited to talk about McLean, Virginia, a place that I I think I've driven past. I haven't been there. I haven't been there yet, but I think the more people that I've spoken to uh, preparing for this, this episode the more I would like to visit there. It's, it seems like a lovely pace and everybody that I've met from there is like gracious and lovely and, and That's nice. friendly. So it seems like a nice place to stop and have a cocktail. Very least. <laughs> we, we should do that. We should do like a New York Times style, like find a diner. Oh, in, I love it. If such a thing exists in McLean and just like bring our microphones and talk to people at the diner. I, do you think there are I, diners in McLean, Virginia though? That's a great question. Based on the demographics and the, the economic data that we're pulling, I'm not sure there are diners. I think there probably are a bunch of like white tablecloth steakhouses we could go to. Perhaps a bistro. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not sure if there is like a Fox News style or like New York Times diner style um, highway diner where you could just go get the everyman's opinion. So I think we have to figure, I think we'd have to figure that part out. Yes. But yes. we did. So if if you didn't listen to the previous episode, you're probably going to want to go back and do that uh, because in the book, Millennials Rising, a lot of the conclusions that are presented there uh, are based on research the authors did. They did use some national data, but they also did some research into the area in which they lived, McLean, Virginia. And as we were reading Millennials Rising and as we were having these conversations, Farrah and I both came to a pretty quick observation that is McLean, I didn't know anything about it, but I thought, is that a good representation of the United States or like globally? Because we're making some pretty big assertions about what could be a hundred million people. We probably want to make sure we have a rep sample. And that led us down this it's not quite a rabbit hole, but it led us down this path of doing some some research, which is the kind of standard research both Farrah and I would do as part of our, our regular work, um, better understanding a, an audience, better understanding a group, better understanding a demographic set, trying to get mm-hmm. to the bottom of what works and what doesn't. So before we talk about the data, Farrah, I shared a spreadsheet with you that is comparative between 
uh, McLean, Virginia, Fairfax County, which which is where McLean is located, and the United States Census, both from the year 2000, around the time Millennials Rising was written, and mm-hmm. 2020. So I just thought we could extrapolate out and see like, well, what's happened since then? And yeah. what was what was your reaction upon looking at the data in those rows and those columns? <laughs> I think I sort of instinctively thought about like having looked at a map at some point in time that given the physical location of both McLean and Fairfax, that this was probably not an area that was like a perfect microcosm of the general population of the United States. It's super close to to D.C., to the Pentagon, to um, major government institutions, <laughs> federal government institutions. And so just like my surmise would have been, this is a lot of federal employees or federal contractors or military, and that it's just not going to look like, you know, um, I don't, I don't know, Hillsboro, Oregon, where where I went to high school, you know, it's just not right. going to look like that spot. And so when we opened this up, I was like, well, it does not look like America. <laughs> but the ways it doesn't look like America are particularly interesting. Like it's, um, yeah, that that was the first thing that stood out to me. It looks like, a and then it seems to be looking less like America over time. Yes, <laughs> right? in, like in it, the year, it kind of got worse. In the year two thousand, it looks like a version of America. It looks like the America that was on movie screens in the year two thousand. Like it is totally. That's a really good way to describe it. It's yeah. not that diverse. It, and I, I do want to go back to Millennials Rising when they credit when they reference the research they did in McLean and what they did was a. Um, some surveys of high school students and educators in McLean, Virginia. And that, that makes sense. That's yeah. a good way to get to that audience. But they say that, um, I don't have the language right in front of me, but they say this, this represents a match, a demographic match. And I think what they meant was racially. And if you look racially, I mean, if you squint at it, it's, it's close, it's close. It's close enough that I wouldn't throw a tantrum. Although the the percentage of um, Asian alone is, is a real distortion that probably breaks their numbers, but that would depend on knowing what the high school census was. But what they leave out is the economic representation. And in some of the early conversations we had with people from McLean and and other people right off the bat, like when we just start scrolling through the, I'm looking at basic census data. This is not genius level research. I'm not making seven lily pad jumps. This is Median value of owner-occupied housing units. The in 2000, the median for the United States per the census was $119,000 median value of their home, and mm-hmm. in McLean, Virginia, it's 388,000. So more than three times the amount. That is, uh, statistically speaking, eye-popping. That's a huge. That's mm-hmm. a huge disparity. So. Right there, if your house is worth three times the national average, you have a different set of values, a different set of challenges, a different set of fears, a different lifestyle. (laughs) And it suggests other things about the safety of your neighborhoods, the quality of your schools. Like we can infer all of that from starting with that stat. That's not the only stat. Um, what's the mm-hmm. next stat that jumped out to you? That For me, I was like, oh, that tells me everything I need to know. And then looking at how it's changed over 20 years, it's it's more than, it's almost 5X now. Yeah, I, I think the, the other thing that stood out to me was the education representation. So the, you know, the bachelor's degree or higher, that, you know, that's been growing in the United States over time, but it's still like a third of the U.S. has a, at this point in time, has a, at least a bachelor's degree. In mm-hmm. 2000, it's about a quarter have a bachelor's degree, but in McLean, three quarters have a bachelor's degree or higher. The high school graduation rate is near nearly 100%, um, whereas it's about 80% in 2000 for the rest of the US. Um, so this is a highly educated area as well. It's also like outperforming the county it's in by more than two times that's <laughs> on, why I, on, the, uh, on the bachelor's degree. Yes. Like, and that's, that's why like, I pulled that county data because yeah, if you're, then if you're, I'm so glad you highlighted this, this stat, because then if you say we went to students and in McLean schools and educators, and that's yeah. where our research ended, 
what that tells me is you're getting input from very high performing students with a high persistence and success rate who have a particular outlook because they are supported by educated teachers who are living comfortable lives. You know, now I'm extrapolating. So guilty as charged, yep. but it's a pretty safe extrapolation that those students will have a certain outlook and a certain opinion about learning and about you know, the future and about what's possible because of the background mm-hmm. they have, you know, there, there's a privilege at stake here. Absolutely. And we, we've talked about this in, in other contexts, but like if, if your, if your parents are working as contractors or employees, or they're serving um, in the federal government or the military, like your attitude towards those institutions is going to be different than people whose immediate family don't do that. Yes, And um, that's not to say that like your cynicism might not grow over time, but like as a kid, you know, look, I mean, my, my dad worked for a couple of years for ADP and I still have some sort of like very way down deep kind of reaction when I see ADP ads where I'm like, oh, that's a nice place. I have no idea if it's a nice place or not, but <laughs> gave my dad a job for a couple of years. Had one of those cool like static electricity balls in the lobby that you could touch and then all the electricity would go to your hand. That's what I remember. So it must be awesome at ADP. I think you're right. when I was eight, that was pretty awesome. And, you know, so I, I, that's also an interesting kind of point about how these economic factors in particular might influence people's attitudes to certain other things you ask them about in a survey. <laughs> and I think I think it is worth saying, like, it, it is reasonably, with the exception of being th- more than three times the rate, the national rate of Asian alone households, um, which has kind of held steady over time. With the exception of that, it's fairly... Uh, racially representative of the U.S. It's a little whiter, but it's uh, not not so much to your point that you'd be annoyed about it. It's it's much less Black or African American. Yes, but you could kind of like you say squint and say, well, it's reasonably diverse, and so we can we can say that it's representative on that basis. But once you start getting into income and the cost of living, it's so out of proportion to the rest of the country that 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 starts to really inflect how you would even begin to understand any of the rest of the demographics. Yeah, because so I th- the way that they are living, the types of homes, the parents, employers, all of that. Yeah, so it's going think, to change um, the way you think about the world. Yeah, especially if I agree with you, the the ends are too small on the the racial demographics to get too worked up about. So especially yeah. they, they, their authors knew the school. So I'll just take their word for it, that it was somewhat representative. Um, uh-huh. When you look at, I don't, there is no data for the year 2000, but for 2020, if you look at foreign born persons as a percent mm-hmm. in the United States, that's 13 percent, 13 and a half percent. And in 2020 in McLean, Virginia, as a point of comparison, it's, 10 points higher. It's 23.5%. Mm-hmm. So just that makeup, like, let's say we had, let's say that is consistent, or even if it's gone up, maybe we, maybe we go back in time and say in 2000, maybe it was 10%. That's a mm-hmm. big difference too, that you're surrounded by a global population, or you have access to uh, perspectives right. from people there. I know that there are diplomats that live in that area. I know that there are people mm-hmm. that are world travelers that having access to that experience, even secondhand, is a game changer in how you view the world. People who live in an insulated community, they only can see their small town and, you know, whatever's on the, whatever's proposed through the news or through media. So I think that's also one from a, um, you know, creating a perspective. That's another metric that, that is really telling. And I couldn't find in the 2000 census, I just couldn't find foreign born uh, persons as a measure that was captured then. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I think the, the other one that stood out for me um, was the, the poverty rate. That in 2000, it's just below 2% for the U.S. as a whole, it was 11%. I mean, that's, you know, so a fifth of the rate of poverty in, in this area. Uh, it's gone down even since then, according to the 2020 census, 1% of people in McLean are living in poverty versus, again, about 11% of Americans. And so, you know, the rate of home ownership is higher than the national average. The rate of poverty is significantly lower. I mean, wildly lower than the national average. What you're being exposed to on 
you know, on one end of the curve is more diverse, more cosmopolitan, more, more diverse, quote unquote, you know, in the sense of like foreign born households and that sort of thing. Um, it's more cosmopolitan. It's more affluent. It's more perhaps, um, you know, kind of world outward facing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is missing the experience of being a renter, yes. <laughs> um, of, of being around kids who live in section eight housing, being around kids whose parents work multiple jobs to afford rent in a shitty apartment. Like these kids aren't growing up knowing a bunch of people like that. That again is going to color the way that they respond to different kinds of questions on a survey yes. about how they feel about society and their place in it. And that point about renting is huge. It's, it's in 20, in the year 2000, it was, um, 66% uh, owner-occupied housing rate for the United States and 20 points higher, 85.3% in McLean, Virginia, to, yeah. to make your point. That is a different set of pressures. That is a different set of standards. That is a, that is a certain type of privilege. You know, That's a certain luxury that people have and it definitely colors the perspective that, that people would have mm-hmm. about what life is and what's possible in life. Yeah. When you start thinking about the types of things that came out of that 2000 era set of research that they did where um, these students in Fairfax County, McLean, Virginia schools were trusting of institutions, thought that the government in general was trying to do good, uh, had positive trusting relationships with their parents generally thought that their futures were all up and to the right, <laughs> you know, all going to, everything was going to be great and that they would be, you know, better off than their parents, you know, all of those kinds of beliefs of um, forward looking positivity and, and hopefulness. It's kind of like, well, when you, when you look at these numbers, you just kind of go, well, sure. <laughs> You're already on third base. Like what would make you think that you wouldn't get knocked straight into home? Like you would think that. And that's not what the average experience or the median experience of people in the U.S. is. And so they're they're exposed to some things lots of people aren't exposed to, and then they're just completely not exposed to a whole bunch of things most people are exposed to. And so there's just some disproportionality there. And and I think this actually really gets to something we'll talk about more when we when we dig into the methods of studying these um, demographic cohorts is like. There's the on-paper diversity stuff, right? The, the basic demographics of age and race and gender and ethnicity and and those kinds of things. And yeah. then there's like, what are the elements of that that shape kind of, for want of a better phrase, because it gets used in un, by unfortunate people, viewpoint diversity, <laughs> like that that is the thing that that's tricky. And so looking at some of these more socioeconomic factors give you some clues about what might be driving the viewpoints that are expressed beyond the basic demographics of age, race, gender. Well, we were lucky to be introduced to some very important people that we'll jump to next in this episode. And I'm really looking forward to those conversations. Yeah, we're going to get the kind of lived experience on the historical view, which is going to be really awesome. Yeah, it's going to be great. My generation doesn't have a category, but my name is Marilee Pierce, and I have lived in the McLean community for over 50 years, and I am a native of Washington, D.C., but I have also spent um, a lot of my adult life living in Europe and other countries. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, Paul, would you mind saying your name and generation for me? Hi, I'm Paul Kohlenberger. I'm a millennial. And we were lucky to connect because I was looking for information about McLean, Virginia, uh, more context. As it's cited in Millennials Rising, it becomes the part of the central thesis of how millennials are living and existing in the world at the time of that publication. And I did some examination of census records to start looking at it. And I wanted to talk to people, since I'm located in Arizona, I wanted to talk to people who knew McLean better, who knew some of the history. And so could I have found two more uh, qualified and knowledgeable people? I'm, maybe not. Um, <laughs> would would you speak about the uh, the book that you guys have written, the history that you've written? Well, I'll give a quick overview of how it came to be. It came to be out of sheer panic 
because 2013 came around and the McLean Citizens Association was approaching its centennial in 2014, and nobody could pin down the accomplishments of the organization. And I thought, well, you can't go forward without understanding what an organization has done for 100 years. I happened to have been in an environment committee meeting at the time, and Paul was sitting in the corner, uh, and I was moaning and groaning, oh my gosh, I've got to get started on putting this history together. And at the time, I believe, Paul, you were president of the McLean Historical Society. And he yep. said, I will help. And that's what gave me the courage to jump in with both feet. I had no idea how long it would take us to write the history of the MCA, never mind how <laughs> many hours we spent in the county archives running around McLean. So a year and a half later, we synthesized it all down to summaries by 10 years. So it was easily digestible and put it into a booklet so that we wound up with 100 years of significant accomplishments by decade. I realized that if anybody was going to do it, I was going to have to do it. And would not probably have taken that step if Paul hadn't said, I will help, because it's clearly going to be a humongous task. Too much for too much for one person. Too much for one person to approach. And Paul had Paul had I think better better knowledge of the chronology even than I did. But I was about to say I was I was completely unqualified in in comparison. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It was pure hubris on my part. No, but I I you know I had been on that committee and heard that Marilee needed help. I I knew her as someone of substance in the community that had given a lot and and for whom uh, the MCA was important. And, uh, and as she mentioned, I was I was uh, serving as president of the McLean Historical Society at that time and working with the County Historical Society as well. And I just think that that milestones are important and understanding a community's history is very important for, yes. for giving people a sense of, of belonging. And, and, you know, as we found, the history of the McLean Citizens Association is in many ways the history of McLean as a community. As you can imagine, an advocacy organization that looks at and works for um, the community interest in, in governmental senses and charitable senses is going to end up touching sort of anything that, that relates to the community. And, and in the case of the MCA, it started as the school and civic league. So it was people that were rallying around the first consolidated community school in Fairfax County. It had literally been until that point, one room schoolhouses dotting the landscape every few miles. Um, so, so, you know, that school changed everything. And then the MCA coming in and, you know, fundraising for blackboards and chalk and globes and books for library uh, really sort of well, literally was an empty building when the first principal came in and she established the school in civic league. So she was our founder basically. Because she needed supplies for the school. They didn't even have desks. It's interesting to read in the in the booklet that how the the needs of the community changed over the decades from really basic, you know, organizational things to discussions about, oh, we're gonna build a light rail system. Yeah. You know, and you could see that evolution. It's like um Sim City, you know, you start out in this almost agrarian like <laughs> To Paul's point, we need blackboards. We we have these schools and we don't have chalk in here. We need to figure this part out to, okay, we've got this amazing city that we've built and we need to figure out what's the next evolution of it and how does it expand from there? And, and Paul, I would, Paul, what's ahead. your, what is your background that, that uh, you said hubris, but I feel like you are being self-facing. <laughs> I, I am uh, to some extent. So I uh, I was born in Hinsdale, Illinois, and my family moved here when I was a, you know, an infant. So I've I've been in McLean since 1985. We moved around a little bit, Singapore and Philadelphia and such. But um, I you know I'd grown up here and um, had 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 the blessing of having a mother that had been a librarian, but she stayed home with me and um, always took me to the local library and the community center and the various historic sites and parks around. The community was was always sort of very important and grounding for me, especially because we did periodically move different places for 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 a year or two at a time. Um, so coming back was always sort of feeling like you know a grounded place um, that that was important. Um, you know, professionally, I've I've done some work in public affairs. I've, I've worked in uh, you know small private equity firm. I've run the the Greater McLean Chamber of Commerce. So. Um, a lot of those things have been um, working with people locally, trying to you know start and sustain their businesses. I've been very, um, let's say, bathed in the McLean uh, civic life for many years. <laughs> 
and how do you guys from from your individual and collective perspectives you know how do you what how do you describe mclean and and what are the people that live there like i think there are two mcleans really it's really interesting because mclean was uh rural and um self-sufficient although uh, closely related across the river from washington dc the, the county seat was 15 miles away from McLean. And so people shopped and um, basically worked in downtown Washington. Uh, and uh, so it was uh, the people who did not work um, professionally in Washington were dairy farmers. Mm-hmm. So it was a heavily rural uh, uh, community until World War II. And shortly after World War II, of course, the government, the federal government expanded uh, exponentially. At that time, many people came to the Washington area to work. But with the establishment in the late 1950s, uh, we'd like to call this the perfect storm, certainly in, in our in our chapter. Uh, CIA was uh, Langley, which is a neighborhood of McLean, was selected as a location that brought in 10,000 employees suddenly where there was farmland. Uh, so and not only that, then the, the interstate highway, we ran the Beltway, which basically cut McLean in half. Yeah. And then all uh, the and then so, all the contractors start moving. And then all well. the and then of course it just uh development just mushroomed. And so McLean is basically from that particular period, we are and of course the community seeing more and more development that there was an incredible push for uh, let's protect what we've got. And so we have more parkland here than other other districts in, in Fairfax County. But um, uh, we have basically two McLeans. We've got inside the Beltway where you have your your smaller lot sizes, our business downtown is in inside the Beltway. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more affordable housing is inside the Beltway. And outside the Beltway, uh, we have our larger lots, our custom homes, and parkland. So they're basically the the Beltway cut us in half, the the historic Greater McLean community, and uh, although though we share obviously a common history, it's very different now since the Beltway came in. And what year was that? That was uh, late fifties, early sixties. The Beltway opened in sixty two. Okay. Paul, what's your what's your thoughts on on the the people who live there and and. What McLean I mean, is it's, like? It's, it's like Lake Wobegon. We're we're all above average. Um, no, <laughs> I think there's a tendency to um, see McLean as uh, as sort of um, you know just an affluent suburb, um, and I, and I think it is. But as Merrily sort of indicated, there's there's quite as with anything humane, as you look more closely, there's quite a lot of complexity. Yes, um, you have. I literally have friends to this day whose families were part of a sort of Southern landed aristocracy in the 19th century. Um, And there's still up until about 15, 20 years ago, the Lee family um, of Robert E. Lee fame owned property here in McLean. And and at the same time, that obviously, as she said, has shifted towards mid-century. You had a lot of government workers. There's still plenty of people on that are retirees from the federal or county or state government living on a pension, normal people living in 2,000 square foot houses. And then over the last... 30, 40 years, we, we have, you know, literal billionaires. Um, there's, there's quite a lot of diversity of experience. Um, it's, it's, uh, 25% foreign born at this point. Yeah. Yes. yeah a huge um, impact. Yeah. Right. A lot of, a lot of international and, and you've both, and you've both and, spent time and, living internationally as well. So you're, so your perspective, not only on McLean as an American city, but, but also as a global city, because you have both spent time outside the U S and, well, and I, I, Go ahead. I was just going to say the Cold War had an enormous effect. I was just reading a book. There's an interesting sort of social his, social history of the Cold War, um, looking spatially at the different agencies, the different facilities that were built out. Um, you know, not least the CIA here in town, um, which has driven, uh, frankly, a lot of uh, of of um, population influx from. Um, the former Soviet Union from from places in Asia. Um, so I think that's another sort of thread that's that's um, you know quite quite interesting. We have uh, Queen Noor of Jordan has has lived here in McLean. You know you know exiles. 
it's been a relatively stable community, but you've seen a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, there's a, there's a very cosmopolitan aspect. One of my best friends growing up was, you know, British diplomat's son. The community is stable because of the presence of the federal government and, and government contractors, which of course are very, um, well-established in Fairfax County. Mm-hmm. But I, I think of an example when, um, we decided to live, I've uh, had an opportunity to live in Europe for five, six, seven years. And one reason we did so was to uh, acclimate our children to living with different cultures. We wanted them to have the opportunity to have people, know people of different ra- races and yes. cultures and languages and to have that exposure. And I always think when we came back and I took my son to the elementary school the, up the road uh, and was surprised, though I shouldn't have been, that above the cafeteria, the word cafeteria was written in 37 languages. So while we were overseas, the world like felt had moved here. So uh, my son had uh, the benefit of going to school with an, basically an international class. That's a great experience to have that exposure to all those different influences. Do you think that the proximity to D.C., the proximity to federal government, the proximity to Langley maybe and, and those contractors, is that the biggest um, influence on what what McLean has grown into? It certainly has driven um, the high cost of real estate. Hmm. Um, certainly, we have um, we have undergone in the last twenty thirty years. Certainly, since the early nineties, McMansionization, which has happened in in many ur- urban areas, as, yeah. as one generation transitions out and uh, older houses are torn down and replaced. But we also, I mean, we have many uh, p- people who are heads of of um, think tanks and um, research organizations that uh, are government contractors, basically. Yeah. Uh, so a number of corporate heads. Now we've got some of the, the larger office buildings. We've got Google, Amazon has come to Fairfax County now. So people move uh, for proximity to Washington D.C. Uh, and their elected officials. As a result. Uh, people are able to afford more, and uh, so the, the cost of housing has gone through the roof. It takes now today. I mean, I when we came to, when we lived in McLean, you could buy a good four bedroom house for under a hundred thousand uh, dollars, and that's unheard of today. The, the same the same size house now uh, goes for over a million dollars, and a young family cannot handle that. The average rent that you need in order to afford a roughly a $500,000 house, which is the average house uh, in Fairfax County, uh, is you need um, $500,000 or you know, in order to rent a one-bedroom apartment, you need uh, income of $68,000 a year. In McLean, that's multiplied. In McLean, you need close to a million dollars to to even have a, a, a home. So that I would say the community is um, is characterized by, again, um, those who can afford it. Yeah, Fairfax, you know, I mean, comparing Fairfax County to the average U.S. county is, is an elevated comparison. And then right. comparing McLean inside of right. Fairfax, Fairfax County, it, it boosts up again. Yeah, so those, yeah, those home values, you could see it going all the way back to the census in 2000. It has been extraordinarily driven by the, the 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 role the growth of the federal government um federal government's been here since 1789 mclean did not grow dramatically until at least the first world war and you just track the changes in in federal policy in 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 size um and it it lines up almost almost entirely the expansion during and after the war created huge pressures, and that's when the suburbanization happened. But until the Second World War, really, it was just a sort of farming, farming community. Very farm, right. Truck small, farming. Small country um, crossroads, general yeah. work, the, the consolidated yeah. school. And uh, so I, I would say that the the sort of the, there's definitely an element of the sociology about power here in McLean, but it's shifted from a, a good friend of mine grew up in the 50s over near the CIA or what became the CIA. And she said all of her neighbors were admirals, generals, Congress yeah. people, um, agency officials, cabinet yeah. secretaries. So there's always been that sort of cachet since the mid-century. 
Um, but it's really shifted now to 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 more of an economic power. And the, the 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 community and the county changed. My family moved here when Mobile Oil moved their headquarters down from Manhattan to Fairfax yeah. County. And that was one of the first um, sort of broadening of 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 the the economic base. Um, and that you know we have been able to draw in other companies just recently to this region, Nestle and Starkist and Volkswagen yep. USA, and it's sort of diversified, but. But frankly, a lot of that has just changed when, when the government, as I mentioned a moment ago, when the government during the during the Reagan years started defense buildups and 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 shifting some of the governmental functions to private sector entities, a lot of um, a lot of the a lot of the people were doing defense contracting, for instance. The sort of notion of power and the source of power is still very directly related to Washington, but it's um, it's sort of at a whole new level um, than it used to be. I remember sitting in a, a, a restaurant in Tyson's Corner in the mid-aughts, and I was working for Fairfax County at the time, and I overheard a conversation with a couple of young men who clearly were working in one of these think tanks. It was in the middle of the Iraq invasion. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, one turned to the other and said, you know, if we if, if we have another war, I'll be able to retire because his... <sighs> because. <laughs> It was remunerative for him to, uh, again, get, and these were young men, usually, I guess, mid-30s, um, but that those were the way they were seeing their career, their career um, prospects. He, he said the thing that, that I fear they think. <laughs> <laughs> if we think about Millennials Rising, which was written in the, in the late 90s, I guess if, as I look at the data of um, comparing the McLean of the 90s to the US of the 90s, you know, on a, it's all medians and means and averages. So nothing's perfect. But if we can go back in time together, did you and Paul, you were you were young, I think, when that and new, pretty new in your time there, maybe, but how did McLean feel then as a, you know, exemplar of the US? Do you would you say in that at that time period at the turn of the century, was it pretty good example of life and culture in the US or was it was it different i mean home values but aside i felt it was very middle class mm-hmm. uh, comfortable middle class uh there were of course um um mclean still had the cachet and great falls had the cachet of being privileged and wealthy uh it was not unusual for instance we had 16 year olds to get sports cars or uh, expensive cars for their 16th birthday while your teachers were driving uh, lesser models. So I, 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 I was conscious. I always thought of myself as middle class. I lived in a typical standard subdivision. Uh, and uh, But I was very conscious of that there was significant wealth around me. And my, my daughter came home from school one, one day after visiting a friend and she said, Mom, I was so embarrassed. I had to ask ask where the front door was because the house was so large. <laughs> so there was 20, that, 20 there was, bathrooms. You don't know, you don't that, know which one. There, there was that difference. We have a lot of uh, community organizations that bind the community, McLean Citizens Association, of course, uh, from which all the others sprang. Yes. But, um, so but those, those uh, organizations were um, very well um, attended and membership was high in them. And I have I've noticed as years have gone by, the, uh, the membership uh, waxes and wanes, depending upon, again, generations and the interest. Interesting. Paul, what are your memories of, of McLean at that time? Nursery school. <laughs> um McLean, I, I, Marilee's right in the sense that McLean at that time was a privileged community um, and had been for, for many decades, frankly. Um, that's really started with the Kennedys moving out, Hugh Auchincloss and Gore Vidal and a number of people built, buy, buying you know big places. And that sort of drew a number of people starting in the 50s. Um, it was still in the late 90s, I would say, a better representation of the country than it probably would be today. It, it was more of a place that if you had done well, you could move before or as you were starting a family. Today, you you must more or less be established um, to be here. So I think that has changed some matters. I think it's represented, frankly, the broader sociology, uh, sociological change uh, related to um, 
two parent two parent families both in the workforce yeah and um, class class structure in general in the US yeah exactly it's it's just um it's partly just the land economics are such that you had a, a greater amount of housing stock that was that was um sort of typical for Americans my wife grew up in a in a neighborhood of mid-century 2000 square foot houses um sort of a typical mid-century and um I was talking to to one of her parents um neighbors who I also know some years ago and and that person had had a party for her six or seven year old kids and one of the kids grew up in another part of McLean and literally completely um innocently came in and said where's the rest of your house so it's <laughs> there's always been that um, yeah so it's like you can't find the front door yeah so there there has it I I would say just like a lot of those you know, you know the 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 extent to which there's there's income inequality even with McLean, I think has, within McLean has widened. There there were people that you know in the 80s and 90s and 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 such were working. I, I know one family that one worked at the community center and one was the was a biology teacher at the local high school, and they could afford a house, they could raise a family comfortably. I, can't, I can't do that anymore. It's just not even it, it's unthinkable unless you have unless you have family money or some other support that you're that, and that's it so i i don't like to describe mclean this way but I, I i think the two words that come to to mind are privileged and wealthy and, and it's uh, consistent with growing metros across the country where that that divide of privilege has sort of stepped in and then created a a little bit of a chasm for people on on one side or the other and and yeah. you mentioned merely two mcleans but you were talking about geographically the inside and outside of the beltway. Right. There's also, and it's not exclusive to McLean, there's also the economic reality of, um, you know, when home prices get at that out of hand, uh, to Paul's other point, you know, you do have to be established to get into those neighborhoods and that creates an aspiration. It creates a little bit of a separation in, in a lot of cases. You've both talked about, and in the, the booklet that you produced, there's a lot of community ties, a lot of community fabric. And I wonder going back to the nineties, you know, when we were looking back, uh, you, you mentioned how strong those were. I, w I wonder over the past 20 ish years, as the economics have changed, has, has that community fabric held? How has it evolved? Is it, is it pretty, is it still I, pretty strong? You're both obviously still involved. Again, it ebbs and flows, and I've found it's age-separated, segregated. You find that um, your PTAs, obviously, are school-age. Um, you know, your parents who have school-age kids are uh, community organizations now tend to, to gravitate toward the retired mm. because it takes a two-income family. A lot of our organizations used to be heavily um, women who stayed home, who did not work, basically formed the core of our of our earlier civic associations. Okay. And that's definitely not the case. The women have basically gone to work uh, or spend uh, their time at their jobs now. But it, it seems, seems to be age, age segregated uh, where we had the uh, the uh, expertise and the, the um, institutional knowledge with our uh, older and retired people. Uh, that uh, I wouldn't say that's the majority of our of our civic organizations. I, I would say the McLean area retains a surprising network and fabric of organizations that help establish identity and provide some sense of grounding for being a place that is more or less a zip code or two. Mm -hmm. um, insofar as again, it is not an incorporated um town or city or municipality it has suffered from the changes we discussed earlier um two earner families from the broader decline in the joining culture the bowling alone thing from a change technologically driven obviously in as to how people connect and what is important to them from a location or geographically based um, identity or forum in which to act to more specialized interest-based um uh, you know and we we have such a mix of cultures here heavily asian uh is our is our next largest uh, proportion yeah and and then hispanic uh and um 
uh, cultural organizations such as the ones that we that we've been associated with aren't necessarily part of that culture, uh, and um, we've tried recruiting uh, broader to increase diversity. And we do have some uh, diversity in the Grand Citizens Association, but I would not say not as representative of the community as we would like. So going back to the 2000s when people were thinking about millennials as the generation. So Paul, you were probably not actively thinking about yourself as a generation. Uh, you were probably just trying to get through high school and college. Yep. But uh, Marilyn, maybe we'll start with you. And and when they talked about the youth, I believe you said you meant you had read Millennials Rising or talked to uh, Bill Strauss at the time he was working on the book. How did you think about the youth then in, in local to McLean and based on what you knew about you know the kids in the neighborhood? Again, um, uh, they were just coming out of, I guess, um, drugs had been a problem earlier yes. in the 70s and the 80s. And there was, um, um, people were very, very conscious of, of keeping kids safe and um, um, trying to make certain that, um, that you didn't have huge house parties on the weekends. Yeah, that's still a concern. <laughs> but that's still a that was a big thing. It didn't work. Yeah. And I thought, but no, the word <laughs> got out. The word always got out. But uh, that that kind of thing was going on. But also, it was the an initiation of the internet, too. And um, everybody, including parents at the time, everybody was sort of naive as to the potential uh, that we had seen realized uh, with the internet today. There was a tremendous feeling of uh, optimism that the internet was going to bring everybody together. It was going to be a great um, source for education, and particularly in schools for teachers. Yeah. Uh, and people, a lot of people did not have computers at home, but that was coming. People were beginning, more people were beginning to get computers. Uh, and um, Harry Potter was really big. Uh, so and you had a generation that was heavily into reading the next, the next adventure. Uh, but you also had the pressures of the, the international pressures. I always think of the of growing up in Washington. I always got the Washington Post on my doorstep uh, every every morning. So the world was literally at my front doorstep, and you tend to think tend more internationally than you do local. Even though we used to get our local papers, so international events tend to impact not only families because people are involved in the various agencies of the government, mm -hmm. but um, but the kids absorb what's going on around them, and they absorb the evening news. And of course, you had uh, Y2K, which had everybody who was hysterical <laughs> at the end of the century. Yes, I remember. Going to collapse, and uh, but that you know permeates the, the, with the family. And then you had 9-11, uh, where suddenly everything was uh, um, protect, protect me from terror. And uh, building real, real, real fear, right? Yeah. And suddenly, and real fear, and suddenly, every everything was what became locked down, and you had to have IDs to get in anywhere. And, and our young people absorbed this, and parents absorbed this, and become more pr protectionist. Uh, you want to protect your your kids from all of the, the threats that are out there. So the combination here, community, the security, and the stability of your community. Versus the maelstrom beyond your, you yeah. know, the radius of your, um, your neighborhood, but that's happening because your parents are involved in the department, or you, you know, it's you've seen the headlines in the newspaper that came on your front porch that morning. So it must have been a time of turmoil for young people, beginning to go on their own to face a world that, probably from the Washington point of view, was. was Perhaps more frightening than if you were in love another, you know, in the Midwest or elsewhere. I always know when I go visit my uncle in San Diego how different the world seems because things are so uh, well different issues and the newspapers yeah. different. So different perspective in Washington, I think, gives you that international and that government um, component that uh, young people grow up with that I don't think is uh, so prevalent in the rest of the country. Yeah, that's a good point. And and Paul, were you aware of the the millennial identity at that point? No. <laughs> Forgive me, but, but no, no, it's 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 um, good. I think 
I think the 90s in McLean and elsewhere were sort of an interregnum between, um, frankly, a lot of turmoil internationally and, and domestically of the 80s, 70s and 80s. And and the last 20 years we've had here with, with 9-11, et cetera, um, it was, I think, a time of conform, frankly, of, of conformity, of of, yes, safety, but things were things were good in the 90s and it was a great time to grow up. Um, I think in a way it did a disservice to the generation given the upheaval of the following decade. Mm. Um, both both internationally and, and obviously economically, which has been, uh, you know, the, the the Great Recession was very difficult on millennials. You know, I remember nine, morning of 9-11, we had, you know, <laughs> black suburbans whisking away a son of a Saudi prince from our school. It was quite different. And as, as Marilee said, I think it shifted the, the, the sociology to, um, to mo- one much more... You know, wary of things. I do want to ask about how, if the the issues that you thought about the youth then, Merrily, or and Paul, how you view the youth today, you know, maybe your own kids or the the kids that are graduating high school and you know in that phase. Do you I, think? How do you think about the concerns, um, the defining issues around that group compared to the millennial right. generation? Oh, very definitely. I, I'd say major difference. Of course, parents have always been um, very ambitious for their children in this in this community. Uh, and educational excellence is, uh, is 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 probably a priority in every family. Yeah. Uh, and kids are pushed. Kids are pushed into and but they also they push the public school system to one more gifted program. And we have a, a special one <laughs> high school that kids start in tutoring classes at the age of three so that they'll qualify in high school. Uh, but I have noticed now that, um, speaking of institutional uh, sports, uh, that kids are much more organized into uh, basically a, a success track. Uh, you you pay uh, significant monies to participate in traveling teams so that you can excel in sports from a fairly early age. In many cases, with hopes that you'll win a scholarship, because the cost of college has, you know, just gone out of sight. Even when I was going to school, and even when our kids were in school and college was expensive, uh, we never even considered taking out a, a college a loan, a student loan. Whereas now, that's almost that yeah, you have to have loans in order to afford a seventy thousand dollar a year at college if you're going to private college, and even our state schools. So the cost of college, I think, has driven parents to make certain that their kids get the most out of public schools. So you've got more AP classes, yes, more advanced classes. So some kids are taking two, three, and four, you know, advanced classes, hoping to again get into a, a better school or not have to take so many courses in college. I'm seeing students with much less free time on their hands because they're studying so hard and working mm-hmm. so hard. I mean, we certainly wanted the best for our kids, and our kids all took music lessons and belonged to this. But I don't remember the pressure that I see my my friends, you know, children under these days. Yeah. We've had over the last ten years a rash of suicides at McLean and Langley High Schools. It has become, frankly, a, a, a quite a big problem. That's um, terrible. Yeah, I guess these are Gen X parents, so they, they're typically seen as a little bit more laid back. So I, I think it's um, I think it's more of the global pressure. You're you're trying to compete on a, a global global stage. You're seeing, you know, with social media, you're seeing peer comparisons. Um, so there's that added pressure. And I think, as I said earlier, like this this particular community has always been. Um, uh, you know, I, I, highly competitive. Highly a, there's certainly been an achievement focus in this in this particular community for sure. Do you um, think it's amplified because you have an international community in McLean? Do you think very, it's worse there, different. or do you think because you're both well traveled? Do you think across the country it's like I can say a lot of what Marilee described sounds consistent with what I experience here in Arizona, but I wonder. Or- it's true you, in urban areas in general, I think. But yeah, do you think you it's have, even amplified though? Because Paul, to your point about global competition, like they are actually seeing 
people from other parts of the world and realizing wow, they're going there's... to school they're going to school with kids from other parts of the world right and it's like the more we're exposed to the world it, the more we see but, like somebody is always going to be better but there's yes. also but there's also this there's the large house syndrome is the, the the push to to have more basically i think that puts a tremendous amount of pressure on young people for those kids whose parents you know can't afford a lot of the things but there are a lot of kids who have a lot mm -hmm. uh, and are very privileged and they want to be able to maintain that lifestyle uh, a friend of mine's daughter recently asked her how a uh, mom where do i go to college so i can be rich um because i want to you know because That's a crushing it's, question it is it's it's and, and it's frightening because you want your kid to go to school so they'll learn learn a profession or learn to love learning they will be enriched but but exactly. yeah, rich, very uh, yeah. But there is again, we're seeing more and more people uh, want to be able to maintain the, the lifestyle in which they're living, uh, and that's where I come down to privilege and wealth. And I don't you know, like to really describe my community like that, but I see an uh, an element of that. But I also see an element of families that are work very hard, husband and wife, every day, and. Yeah. They are not very, very, as you would say, overly wealthy. They don't live in, in um, 10,000, 20,000 square foot homes. I was going to say in terms of the pressure, I think it, it relates to uh, also the fact that the broader trend of having as societies get richer, they typically have fewer children. And so sort of all of the sort of hopes and dreams of the parents are focused on fewer and fewer children. So I think that creates a thing. I was driving by near your house yesterday, Marley, and there's probably a hundred cars waiting to pick up kids at, at the elementary school. When I yes. was going there, I asked my wife, she's a few years younger, you walked or you took the bus. Right. There's a lot of sort of care and focus on fewer kids. And I think that sort of, you know, increases the pressure under which they're, they're, they're living. For young people as well, I think it's a diff difficult environment because you see a level that you would like to be able to aspire to, which is well beyond the level that other people in other places have um, had the opportunities. I mean, we have incredible opportunities in this area, but uh, people also have the, um, the the means to enjoy those opportunities. And I think that's the, the that's the the downside of of being surrounded by so much privilege is a skewed expectation of basic questions of what is the good life? Um, what is education for? What is success in life? It really isn't necessarily to to be the boss or to make the, the most money. I think there are just a, a, a different um, mentality than, than there once was. Yeah, yeah, that's want, that's not exclusive to McLean, by the way. Yeah, that but is, you want your kids no, to have a satisfying career and, you know, a, a, a useful life and uh um, exactly and, and an honorable life and i think it it's become harder with 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 the you know slow decline of civic associations and of of a civic life makes it um, where everybody works together for the better and, and where everyone yeah. knows where where people know each other and see each other as humans and say i know that guy oh he's you know maybe uh uh, absent-minded, but he's a real person and he's a good person and, you know, we want to work with them and we're stuck with him because he lives down the street. So we'll that, figure out how to solve this problem together. Yeah, exactly. Whatever Whereas it is. Just, everything's sort of siloed, both both siloed within your house or, you know, everywhere. I think that's a major social change um, that hasn't been to the good. Let me bring up one other, th other thing, and that's the decline of our local newspapers where our organizations basically used to um, be focused and activities used to be focused. And so you knew who the community leaders were, and those those were the leaders from whom your elected officials arose. You basically had a hierarchy. You belonged to this civic association uh, and uh, or you belonged to the school board, but there was a hierarchy that you sort of participated in and then you were ready to run for office. But the community all knew because you got the newspaper every yes. week. You knew who your leader, you're basically the, the leaders in the community were so that there was an identity. And, and it now, was a, 
it was a real person that you knew how to get a hold of. It was and talk a real to. person, and uh, and also our elected officials were held accountable because everybody paid attention to what they were doing because it was in the new, in the local newspaper. We don't have that anymore, and so now when we have people running for office, the question is where you know what kind of experience, what kind of civic experience does this person have? Where is this person coming from, and why is this person running for office? Mm-hmm. So I think we have in the last twenty years, I think we have um, um, erased, I think, one of the more valuable cohesive aspects of certainly that brought McLean together. Where everybody had a common common theme of conversation because it was in the local paper. Yeah, excellent. Merrily, Paul, thank you so much for making time. This was very rich discussion. I'm so grateful to have your um, knowledge, context, and experience. Um, I really appreciate you joining me for this conversation and filling me in on on a lot of this uh, valuable well, information. I am glad to be introduced to your podcast, which I follow. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Thank you, Adam. Appreciate your work. Yes. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you. On the next episode of In the Demo, Farah and Adam talk to a person who was there at the beginning of the millennial myth. The very beginning. About her role and her view on the generation and where it sits today. I'm your robot host, Eliza. Please be kind. In the Demo is produced by Farah Bostic and Adam Piano, with support from the Difference Engine. Music by Omega Man, under the Creative Commons license. Go to inthedemopodcast.com for behind-the-scenes research and supporting information.